from Radio Vermont, it's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. It's your show about the people, places, and the issues that matter the most to you. Now here's your host, Dave Graham. Good morning, Vermont. It is Monday, October the 5th, 2020, and uh, we uh, got a good full show lined up for you this morning. We're going to be speaking first off with Kit Norton of vtdigger.org. He is a political reporter there, and... Uh, We'll be joining him in just a moment after I tell you what else we got coming uh, in the second half hour of the program. The National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare is, uh, has got some messaging. They want to get out there, and uh, they actually are doing the work of uh, trying to, uh, as their name implies, uh, make sure that Social Security and Medicare remain in good shape. They're a little worried these days with uh, some of the actions and pronouncements coming from President Trump. We're going to be speaking with uh, Jim Roosevelt of the uh, committee in the second half hour of the program this morning. Uh, later on, we um, have uh, uh, some folks from the Vermont Specialty Foods Association. They normally have a conference this time of year and all gather for a nice face-to-face meeting and uh, sampling each other each other's specialty foods, we're sure. And uh, this year, things are going to be a little different for them, but they are still uh, an important industry in Vermont and uh, contribute many nice things to our lives, especially delicious things to eat. So we'll be talking to some folks from the Specialty Foods Association in the second hour about what they do plan for an annual event uh, in this age of the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, Let's get into our conversation, though, first off with uh, Kit Norton of ET Digger. I believe he joins us on the phone this morning. Good morning, Kit. Thanks for getting together with us this morning. Good to be here, Dave. Good Good to be back on the show. Yeah, and uh, so let's see, you have been covering some of the Vermont political races, and uh, it occurred to me we ought to get up and uh, get caught up and get a uh, little bit of a report on where things stand. Uh saw some recent polling indicating that Governor Phil Scott has a substantial lead over his uh, challenger, uh, Dave Zuckerman, the current lieutenant governor. Um, and yet there's some folks wondering if the governor's veto of a bill recently might have an impact on uh, eat into that lead a little bit. What do you you uh, had a story about this over the weekend? What are you hearing? Right. So th- this is really in terms of looking at uh, the governor, obviously a uh, highly popular incumbent, uh, handling uh, COVID nineteen, probably the, the the high watermark in terms of how to cover how to deal with COVID in the country, really. Um, and so, how does uh, the lieutenant governor uh, David Zuckerman? try to break into that support um, for, for Governor Scott. And uh, so there's one possible way um, out of several, of course, that, that um, Zuckerman can try to put some pressure on Scott. And one is with the governor's recent veto of uh, a bill that um, the legislature passed. It was called, uh, it is called the Global Warming Solutions Act, uh, which it, it sets goals um, for the state to meet in terms of carbon emission reduction goals. Um, and then it has a clause that could allow uh, individuals to to sue the state if, uh, if if the government does not meet those goals, um, and as well as sets up uh, a climate council to recommend what should how, how they should reach the goal. So anyway, that was the legislation that the Democratic-controlled legislature passed. Uh, the governor um, vetoed it, uh, saying that he had some deep concerns about the legislation. It went back to the legislature, and they over overrode that veto, both House and the Senate. However, what this uh, this back and forth really shows is uh, the governor's um, 
how the governor thinks the state should basically address climate change as compared to what uh, Lieutenant Governor Zuckerman believes. And so this kind of sets up a dynamic which really is uh, uh, can, can show kind of a larger philosophical uh, uh, disagreement between the two in terms of role of government, uh, taxes, uh, and, and a whole slew of things that kind of go between the fiscal conservative and the progressive Democrat. Yeah, the um, <clears throat> I, I I'm I, I must admit I'm a little bit skeptical. I don't know if this moves the needle enough to overcome. Uh, what was the What was the gap in the polling? It was quite large. It was. It was. Phil Scott had around fifty five percent, and and David Zuckerman was around the twenty four percent range. Um, and then I believe there were sixteen percent, according to this BPR PBS poll, of undecided voters. So uh, the governor has a wide, wide margin um, in the lead, and it's it's basically from the folks I spoke to um, before before COVID-19, if COVID-19 had never happened, this could have been an issue, um, and Senator Governor Zuckerman could have made it a big deal, but, but because of the way Governor Phil Scott has handled COVID-19, because of how COVID-19 has realigned people's priorities in terms of public safety, public health, the economy, jobs, it really doesn't allow much oxygen for, for any other of the issues that uh, Zuckerman would have loved to be putting out there, would have loved to be talking about, again, all all pre-pandemic. So it's really totally thrown this, this race that was looking at back in January to be a very competitive race totally in in, in the um, uh, in Scott's camp for, for how this is going to turn out. It's quite interesting how uh, a governor overcoming adversity, I think, is uh, really a um, scores that scores that governor big points and helps politically. I, I think back to uh, Governor Peter Shumlin uh, just after the um, tropical storm Irene swept through the state, uh, leaving all, leaving behind this path of destruction uh, in many parts of Vermont, and uh, he uh, he was credited with really uh, rallying. Vermonters to uh, basically clean up the mess and remain uh, strong and uh, and keep up the keep up their courage in the face of uh, what was really in many uh, communities quite a tragedy, including Waterbury, I must say. Uh, and uh, and Governor Shumlin kind of got some glow from that, and 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 that was uh, I think a, <clears throat> a key a key part of his success as he ran for uh, re-election in 2012. Um, much closer race in uh, 2014 for him. Uh, he didn't have that 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 truck. That Irene glow was starting to fade, I guess, by by 14. And um, so it's it's interesting how that that overcoming of adversity, um, being perceived as a strong leader in the face of adversity, can be so helpful to uh, to a political uh, leader in, uh, in in Vermont. I'm sure elsewhere too. Um, do you think that that, that that idea of overcoming adversity is is a um, is a key uh, a, a key to Scott's current situation here, uh, Kid Norton? One hundred percent. You know, this is something that a lot of uh, Scott's allies have even have been saying in terms of you know the one knock on the governor is that he um, in, in years past never uh, or, or I shouldn't say never but failed to really. Show his 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 ability to lead and and uh, put forward a vision, and that his the way he's handled COVID nineteen, the way his team has um, uh, has been able to really highlight how the governor is able to lead, which again has also been a knock 
from not only um, uh, the people who are close to him, but in terms of his opponents who have said, you know, he doesn't know how to lead. He's a, uh, you know, he's he hasn't worked with the legislature. He hasn't done all these things. COVID nineteen has really given the governor um, an ability to to flex those muscles and and show that he is able to do this. So you know, it's a massive, massive boost for him because again, the way he's handled it and the success the state has had. Uh, you know, also just going back to the polling for a moment, it's also interesting that. Uh, Governor Phil Scott uh, leads among Democrats, Democratic-leaning voters, according again to this poll, over the Democratic nominee, uh, David Zuckerman. He, uh, the governor has about 48 uh, percent approval from Democrats in terms of who they would vote for if, that, if the election was that day, and Zuckerman only had around 41 percent. So we're seeing this, you know, in um, you know a popular incumbent, and with COVID-19 very well, he's even leading among the opposing party, uh, which again should should just uh, show how what a powerful position he is in now with just a month out before the election. Uh, by, by the way, we should credit uh, VPR and Vermont uh, PBS with uh, providing, uh, doing this poll. Uh, that, that is, a, it's, a, it's an investment that uh, uh, many media companies uh, would like to make, and some do. <laughs> and uh, uh, and the, the, when, when they do that, they do, certainly deserve the, uh, deserve the credit for uh, for getting these poll results and uh, creating some interesting, interesting conversations heading into an election. Um, one of the things that uh, the other thing, I mean, I, I, it is very striking to hear that more Democrats uh, uh, came out in support of uh, Phil Scott than of their own party's nominee. Um, that's that spells trouble for Dave Zuckerman. Uh, the other thing that that is um, striking about this poll is with the margin so large, uh, the the margin or the gap in support uh, for the incumbent versus the challenger of uh, in the neighborhood of 30 points uh, um, is is what almost almost twice the uh, the number of folks who are undecided who said they were undecided. So even if all the undecided votes went for the for Dave Zuckerman, that would be uh, still a very large gap, wouldn't it? It would be. It would be. And um, I, I think the, the, the key here is also it all comes down to with um, mail-in voting starting, already have been in, in, in for, depending on where you are in the state, you know, already been voting now for I think about two weeks or so, um, and continuing out throughout um, October here is, you know, how many folks are actually going to vote? Um, and that seems to be the one question uh, that remains to be unanswered at this point. Um uh, because we had very high, there was very high turnout uh, in the primary. Uh, a slightly different system now in the general. Uh, it just really comes down to how many people are actually going to vote. Again, going back to the poll, which is so great that we have those numbers. Um, it, it, according to that poll, around 90, more than 90 percent said that they are planning on voting. Um, so that's uh, that would be an extremely high turnout if that in fact happens. But it all comes down to you know. Are they actually going to? Are folks actually going to send in their ballots when they get them? Are folks going to go to the polls on election day? That—that's the really uh, the big question. And I think beyond simply statewide races, but also looking at um, uh, presidential uh, elections as well in the state um, and and across the country. But going back to statewide, gubernatorial race, LG's race, it's really how many folks are actually going to be voting this year. Yeah, that is, uh, and and we do expect there's going to be. Uh significant uh very high uh turnout especially uh one would think in vermont among democrats maybe that will help uh uh dave zuckerman um 
if if in fact he's able to rally some of the some of his party members to uh to support him and uh um because presidential election year um a lot of folks in Vermont are very dissatisfied with the our incumbent president Donald Trump and uh what what kind of an effect do you think uh Kit Norton uh PT Digger political writer uh what, what effect will the Will those Trump sort of negative coattails that we expect to see in Vermont uh, have in in Vermont, if any? Well, you know, it, it's hard to say. Broadly speaking, I doubt it will have much of an impact on the uh, the gubernatorial race. Um, uh, I, you know, again, Governor Phil Scott uh, is, as shown in point, loved by loved by Democrats in the state, a very high approval rating. However, I, I, I it does seem likely that there will be. At least a handful of voters who um, are do a, a basically a protest vote and go blue, 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 blue all the way down the ballot simply as a show of uh, their dissatisfaction with the White House. Uh, whether that's fair or not for all Republicans on the ticket is another matter. But it does seem likely that there will be a certain number of the uh, voting demographic that does respond to the national politics in that way. Um, however, will it be enough to make a dent in um, the Toro race specifically? Very doubtful. Yeah, I I, I think it's a uh, it's a long road ahead for for Dave Zuckerman for sure. Um, I, w- I wonder if the um, well let's let's talk for for a moment about the, the uh, other some of the other races in Vermont. Uh, uh, the race for lieutenant governor uh, looks a lot closer. What's uh, what's going on there? Yeah, the lieutenant governor's race is a very interesting race here. We have Assistant Attorney General Molly Gray on the Democratic uh, side, uh, first-time candidate. Uh, he's come in with a lot of energy and um, and has, has garnered a lot of uh, excitement um, among uh, Democratic voters across the state. And then on the other side, on the Republican side, we have Scott Milne, longtime businessman, president of uh, uh, Milne Travel, who has run a couple uh, statewide uh, election. Um, uh, campaigns in the past, uh, and they are basically, you know, neck and neck, and really jockeying for who's going to be able to uh, pull us out. It, it, by all signs, it's going to be a very, very close race. And uh, as a way of kind of uh, showing the, the kind of ambiguous nature of Lieutenant Governor's race, uh, well, of the Lieutenant Governor's role in the state, um, you know, the, the big issue that's coming out in these campaign is not not around policy, but it's really about, again, Vermont standards, mudslinging back and forth around uh, around uh, personal uh, attacks. Milne has re- uh, repeatedly criticized uh, Gray for her uh, failure to vote in a number of elections throughout her lifetime, and and then Gray has returned uh, that salvo with with kind of painting Milne as your your typical uh, machine Republican candidate. Who's coming in here? Um, so again, that's a, it's a very much of a it's a tense race there because there's really not much policy to be discussed because the lieutenant governor really doesn't do much policy talk. Uh, so there is going back to this kind of old-fashioned mudslinging again by Vermont standards, uh, which makes it a very uh, interesting race to cover as a, as a reporter. I'm not so sure how uh, uh, voters are finding it, however. Yeah, it's interesting that, uh, and, and in, in the cases of both parties' nominees, uh, neither has held elective office in Vermont before. Um, and uh, is the lieutenant governor's office, uh, I guess it's considered sort of, uh, 
gettable by newcomers? Is it is that what we should be taking from this? Well, you know, the Lieutenant Governor's office is a, it's a funny position, and it's, I would say, overwhelmingly seen as um, a position in state government that is seen as a, a way to really leapfrog into uh, positions of power, uh, whether it be uh, running for governor after holding Lieutenant Governor's seat or whether it be even eyeing uh, uh, Washington, D.C. Um, so it's one of those interesting uh, positions, which it doesn't really require policy background, as we saw in the, this primary this year, where we had uh, two state senators, uh, Senator Debbie Ingram and the Senate pro tem, uh, Tim Ash, uh, lose quite handily to uh, Molly Gray as the newcomer. Both Debbie Ingram and Tim Ash had, of course, much more uh, policy experience uh, than uh, Molly Gray has. However, this is not something that necessarily matters so much in the lieutenant governor's uh, post, uh, and, and it's much more uh, a political post. You know, um, you know, you're presiding over the Senate. You, you do have the power as you have that tie-breaking vote. Um, if the 15-15 votes uh, split in the Senate, you know, you do have, you do have, there is power to it, but it's not so much compared to other, other roles, especially if you're looking governor or other roles in the state legislature. So it is much more of a political role, which, yeah, again, does not require a lot of, of policy know-how to, to fulfill. So, yes, I would say it does hand itself more to newcomers that don't necessarily have your, your quote-unquote, typical political experience. Kid, I just want to run down some of the other races and ask you uh, sort of what they're looking like a month out from Election Day, or just under a month now. We uh, Here we are at October 5th. The election uh, wraps up on uh, November 3rd. And uh, when I say wraps up, interesting, uh, we now talk, I guess, more about election season, or we should, than Election Day, uh, because uh, many people are already voting or have voted, and... Um, your uh, your ballots may already be marked and in there. Um, and Kit, uh, I'm curious to th- ask you whether you're hearing anybody with wondering about that. Uh, we saw the president uh, come down with the coronavirus over the weekend, or actually announcing it early Friday. Uh, went to the hospital on Saturday, um, <clears throat> and uh, there's been a lot of discussion over the weekend about. How sick is he? Is he in any danger? Uh, you know, could you know some people, especially in his age bracket, with some of the comorbidities he has, um, end up uh, with the coronavirus killing them. Basically, uh, in fact, that's the case with more than two hundred thousand Americans who have died from the coronavirus. So this is a very serious thing. And uh, um, what do you do, you do? Do you think that there's anybody now, maybe with some? Uh, uh, wondering about their their vote if they've already cast it. Well, you know, this is something. It just seems to be another curveball thrown in in, in twenty twenty here. I, I don't think any of us could have guessed that the president would have gotten uh, COVID nineteen. Uh, you know, a month out from the uh, election results, it's it's quite a bizarre situation we find ourselves in. Uh, you know, again, as people are already voting, and you find this out. Um, you know, it's really, really hard to tell. Uh, you know, it, again, looking at polling, you know, state to state as compared to national polling is a very different, gives a very different idea of how um, folks in the U.S. are feeling about the presidential race. You know, statewide, uh, sorry, national polling 
shows uh, former Vice President Biden having a, a, a slight lead. But really, you know, if, if lessons from years past should teach us anything, national polling, in my opinion, we should not be looking at so seriously and be much more looking at state the state polling, which tells a very different story um, in terms of how close this presidential race is going to be. Uh, and I don't think that's changed, even with uh, the president uh, coming down with COVID-19. You know, he, the president is coming out with a lot of panache, recording uh, messages that are going out on social media, uh, going out for a, a ride around Walter Reed in his um, in his um, in his in his uh, cars. Um, so I wouldn't I wouldn't be willing to say that this is going to have a major negative impact um, on on the president's chances. Uh, it seems very likely that this is going to be a extraordinarily close race uh, going down the line here. And. Um by the way, uh, we have a, an email from a listener. <laughs> Let's back up a little bit. Uh, it says, can Kit say more about Molly Gray's criticisms of Milne? So back to the lieutenant governor's race for a minute here, if you don't mind, Kit. Uh, what, 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 sure. have, what have some, you said, uh, yeah, I think you said that uh, there's, uh, Molly Gray has been trying to push the idea that Scott Milne is a, is a uh, creature of uh, sort of Republican machine politics. But uh, any uh, any more details on, on what, you know, on her remarks about uh about her opponent sure sure what she what she's pointed to is uh the support that Milne has received from uh, a pack which is uh the republican state legislature's uh committee uh which is a uh, which is a, a super pack the political action committee which um spends for uh, gop uh candidates throughout the country and and really looks for uh to, to win back the state legislature for the republican party um, they spent uh, $200,000 on a television ad um, that is, is up on social media uh, and on television. Um, and then also looking at uh, his, his, his past runs, running against uh, Senator Patrick Leahy uh, uh, and, and, and going after that longtime uh, standing senator that, we, that Vermont has, and then also uh, his past run uh, against Peter Shumlin. Basically, it's that... Uh, Milne is a business owner looking out for business interests who has the backing of the uh, Republican, um, uh, you know, the main, mainstream Republican Party. Uh, she also, uh, in a recent debate, uh, tried to make sure that there was a parallel line between what McConnell, uh, uh, what sorry, what Milne has said in terms of um, saying that McConnell is very effective. This is Senate Majority Leader uh, uh, Mitch McConnell. Um, uh, from from Republican from Kentucky, uh, so she's been trying to make sure that there's messaging out there that really uh, tries to illustrate Milne as someone who is friendly with uh, what has become the mainstream of the Republican Party, and that also that party is backing him all the way. So again, that that's that attack, um, and again, it's not really anything to do with policy, uh, even though Milne has put out a policy plan. There's very little debate around actual policies. Um, and Molly Gray, even, going back to a little policy discussion, she is even sounding very much like Governor Phil Scott, a Republican, in terms of saying that we need to deal with the demographic issue in Vermont, which is something that Governor Phil Scott has said repeatedly throughout his time in, in office, going back to 2016. Um, so th- that, again, that's kind of 
broad strokes what's trying to be painted by the Democratic uh, opponent, which I do not think is unintentional, again, going into a general election year um, with the current president um, and, and with Democratic voters potentially coming out in, in strong force uh, for this election. Well, I, I mean, actually, when you when you when you get to this level, we just have a couple of minutes left, but I'm going to run a couple of policy questions that have been much discussed recently in Vermont. Recently, passed you and ask you if there is any indication of where the two two candidates for lieutenant governor stand. And I'll just pick some at random. Uh, mountaintop wind. No discussion. I'm sorry. There's been very little there's been very little discussion around around that type of issue. I, I mean, for instance, okay, uh, retail uh, marijuana. So uh, Molly Gray has said she's in favor of it, and uh, Scott Milne has said that uh, he's basically taken the, the governor's position on this and that he, would, he needs to make sure that there are uh, there's roadside safety uh, involved before making a decision. Got it. Okay. Well, uh, Kit Norton, that's about all the time we have this morning, but I uh, very much appreciate you joining me, and uh, it's good talking with us. Let's do it again soon. My pleasure, Dave. You have a good one. All right, uh, we are going to a bottom of the hour break for some CBS News. We'll be back in a couple of minutes, folks. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. Now back to the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM. We are back, and uh, there's been quite a bit of talk recently about uh, Social Security and uh, Medicare, but Social Security in particular uh, because uh, President Trump a month or so ago was talking about uh, issuing an executive order. I think he did issue an executive order. We'll get uh, a little firmer on the details here in a minute or two, uh, ending or, or temporarily suspending, that is, the uh, payroll tax that supports about 90% of the funding for Social Security. And I remember thinking, boy, people are talking about defunding the police. Are we defunding Social Security? Yikes. Uh, what does that mean for uh, people in, in my age bracket? I'm approaching my retirement years in the next few. And, uh, uh, boy, I would like to think that all of those contributions I made from my weekly or biweekly paychecks for all those decades would be uh, pay off. That was the plan anyway. I hope I'm not a sucker and a loser, uh, to borrow a phrase from another one of the president's conversations. And um, the uh, we're going to find out a little more about the current state of Social Security and Social Security policy from uh, Jim Roosevelt, who is with the uh, National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare. I believe he is on the phone with us this morning. Good morning, sir. Thank you for joining me. Good morning. Good to be with you. Uh, first off, I understand that your group has uh, taken an unusual step for it, which is to endorse a uh, presidential candidate. Is that right? That is correct. The National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare has been in existence for about 38 years, 
never endorsed a presidential candidate before. We've broken with that precedent. This time, uh, the National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare is endorsing Joe Biden and Kamala Harris for president and vice president. And w- why? Uh, what What is it about this election that uh, makes you break your tradition on this? So we feel, and I'm vice chair of the advisory board of the National Committee, uh, uh, the uh, we feel that an exception had to be made this year. Uh, the contrast is just too great. Uh, during his convention speech, Joe Biden called Social Security and Medicare sacred obligations and vowed to protect them. Uh, he understands that they're essential to seniors' well-being and even more so during the uh, uh, COVID crisis. And in fact, he has a plan for Social Security that would expand benefits, lifting an additional half a million seniors out of poverty by 2030. Uh, uh, He understands that more revenue must be brought into Social Security uh, because most of the 64 million Americans uh, and uh, uh, 150,000 Vermonters who are uh, uh, receiving Social Security absolutely uh, depend on it. Uh, President Trump uh, just doesn't, it not only doesn't get it, he doesn't even even care. As you mentioned, he signed an executive order giving employers the option to suspend collecting uh, collecting and paying the Social Security FICA tax, which is what funds, as you said, that's what funds Social Security uh, benefits. Uh, uh, And uh, he he said he's suspending it until the end of the year, but then he said if he's reelected, uh, he's going to uh, he's going to completely do away with it. Uh, the chief actuary of Social Security have uh, has testified uh, to Congress that uh, if that happens, Social Security will run out of money in 2023. Uh, not just use up the trust fund, but totally run out of money. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, uh, we think that President Trump is very dangerous for Social Security. Uh, many employers are not taking the option of suspending the uh, collection of the tax, but federal employees are forced by uh, President Trump's order uh, to have their collection suspended. Uh, that will, would mean that they either would have to pay that back come the first of the year, all in one, all at one time, or uh, Social Security, uh, if if Trump goes ahead with what he says, Social Security will just start running out of money. Um, and the, the president has said, I think, that uh, he would uh, shore up Social Security's funding that, you know, oh, no, it's not going to run out of money because we are going to backfill it from the uh, federal general fund. Um, and I, my question about that is, is this the same general fund that's about three trillion dollars in debt right now? That that is what he talked about. Uh, this is the same general fund that can't where the uh, where Mitch McConnell and the Republicans in the Senate won't even pass the bill for uh, further relief uh, of people affected by uh, COVID nineteen. So that's not something we can we can count on at all. Uh, my grandfather Franklin D Roosevelt. Uh, signed Social Security into law back in 1935, and at the time, he said he set it up with a payroll tax so no damn politician could mess with it. 
Uh, that was his <laughs> phrase, no damn politician. <laughs> so, uh, uh, clearly, uh, he had not considered Donald Trump. Uh, none of us, I think, had. Uh, the, uh, and that's why we're endorsing Joe Biden. You know, it, it, it really is, uh, pretty fundamental, it seems, to, uh, ideologies, uh, that are extant in America today. Um, you know, there, there is a, a streak of real libertarianism and, and conservative, uh, uh, stop looking for a government handout kind of an approach, uh, from some on the right, um, apparently maybe including this president, but this, this idea of, uh, of, Changing Social Security in a huge way, backing the government out of it, privatizing it, uh, et cetera, has been under discussion at least since the uh, George W. Bush administration. Is that right? George W. Bush did really bring to the forefront privatizing uh, part of Social Security. Uh, mm-hmm. fortunately, I was involved in the campaign to not privatize it uh, back then. Uh, for, uh, and George W. Bush said that he would visit every state to campaign for privatizing Social Security. He visited 49 of them. Every time he visited a state and people started focusing on it, the polling uh, turned deeply against uh, against privatizing Social Security. So people understand. So sort of like you mentioned it, uh, in your in your introduction, uh, uh, people have been paying their Social Security tax their whole working life and that makes this an earned benefit it's not a handout it's not welfare it's an earned benefit it's a pension that people have earned uh and uh uh and it's turning it into a program funded theoretically and i don't i say theoretically because i'm dubious uh, as i think you are that this would happen uh out of the general fund means that every year when the federal government does its budget does its budget we have to wait and see well is there enough money to pay all the social security benefits continuing to use the to have the payroll tax uh, uh, is, uh, is is an absolute amount that's been in place since 1935 now uh, Joe Biden uh, his proposal, I know there have been proposals out there, and I'm wondering if he is uh, of this camp. Uh, there is um, a plan uh, to actually raise the cap on the amount of uh, income on which you can be taxed. Uh, Social Security tax currently, uh, you, you you pay a certain percentage up to uh, up to X income, and you can fill in the numbers here for me if you don't mind. Uh, right. And basically, uh, what some have suggested in terms of shoring up Social Security, making sure that it's in good shape uh, well into the 21st century, uh, have talked about raising that cap so that you would uh, basically be have uh, a higher income eligible, eligible to be uh, taxed in this fashion. Uh, fill in the blanks here, if you would. Sure. Uh, so right now, uh, you pay, everybody pays Social Security tax on their, on their payroll, on their earned income, uh, up to $135,000 of earnings every year. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, pa- payments of the tax stop. So it means that people who make a lot, uh, a lot of money, whether it's as a CEO or a, a lawyer or a doctor, don't pay after they, after they have earned $135,000. Uh, 
in, in earned income for the year. Now, most of us pay throughout the year. Uh, uh, Joe Biden has said, you know, people ought to pay their, uh, their fair share, and we ought to improve uh, benefits under Social Security. Uh, uh, his plan, Joe Biden's plan, would raise benefits uh, for the average uh, Social Security uh, recipient by about $1,300 a year. Uh, and he says we ought to raise that uh, cap to around $250,000. Uh, that cap was has was set uh, with inflation take, uh, taken into account, but people at the top of earnings have done so much better than people in the middle or lower that the cap has come to be not at, right where it should be. So Joe Biden uh, uh, wants to raise that cap. Uh, and he wants to uh, uh, wants to raise uh, benefits uh, for average Social Security re- recipients. Hmm. Uh, we have a listener calling in. Uh, let's go to Xenia in Barrytown. Good morning, Xenia. Yes. What's um, on your mind? Well, uh, I'm living on my Social Security right now. Mm-hmm. So I have opinions about it. Um, I also have an opinion uh, as to why uh, Trump is proposing this, even against such strong popular opinion. Um, I heard a book review about about uh, called the the Velvet Rope Economy, and it explains that rich people don't live in the same world as the rest of us because they are not subject to the annoyances and so on because they have so much money they can buy their way out of everything. Also, and and that book documents it, and when I get a little ahead, I may buy that book. Um, But... Really, rich people talk to each other, and they don't talk to us common people. And so their their point of view is somewhat skewed. And uh, that's, I think, motivating uh, Trump and some of the Republicans. So that's, that's my okay. notion as to why such an outrageous thing is being proposed. Uh, well, uh, if I if I may comment, uh, sure, uh, Dave. Uh, uh, I, I think you're exactly right. Uh, uh, it's always hard to say why Donald Trump is doing any of the things that he does. Nobody knows why he uh, spent hundreds of thousands of government dollars doing a uh, five minute motorcade around the hospital yesterday, either. But uh, but. Uh, it does appear to be uh, just motivated by uh, uh, by the point of view of rich people that well, social security uh, isn't something that people have to count on. And if you have lots of investments uh, and they're really living on your uh, dividends and interest, uh, what we used to call uh, clipping coupons uh, 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 on bonds. Uh, uh, then you don't care very much about whether your Social Security amount is deposited in your checking account or, or whether you get a check every month. Uh, but for most Americans, 
Social Security is the core of what they retire on. And if they have been lucky and been able to save a bit, uh, maybe they supplement it. But Social Security need, is and needs to be something they can absolutely count on. And that's the reason that FDR put the payroll tax in place to pay for it. Uh, and this is basically uh, a, 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 a Trump scam. Uh, uh, he's uh, uh, he's also uh, uh, trying to fool around with Medicare uh, uh, as well, uh, and uh, uh, and announced uh, uh, about ten days ago that he's going to send a two hundred dollar uh, debit card uh, to thirty three million seniors on Medicare to pay for prescription drugs. Now that's a one-time hit if he does it. If he does it, although he just announced it, he hasn't actually done anything to make it happen. But that doesn't take care of the cost of drugs uh, day in and day out uh, as the years as the years go by. So uh, 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 I think everybody has to look with a skeptical eye on whatever Donald Trump says he's doing with Social Security and Medicare as opposed to uh, Joe Biden has a very clear plan. Uh, Joe Biden's plan is uh, actuarially sound, something we can count on going forward. All right. Uh, Xenia, thank you for the call. I really appreciate it. Uh, Jim Roosevelt, I'm wondering if you, um, if you feel as though Joe Biden should be making a bigger issue out of this, I would think that it's uh, tailor-made to really be hammering on for a Democrat who wants to eat into some of what certainly in 2016 was uh, President Trump's advantage among older voters. Well, uh, Dave, uh, the uh, Social Security was not discussed in the first debate. Of course, it was very hard to discuss anything in the first debate uh, yeah. because President uh, interrupted about 174 times. Uh, the uh, <clears throat> Joe Biden uh, should and, and, and I think uh, would uh, talk about this more in the second debate if and when it takes place. Now, given what's happened uh, to President uh, Trump's health uh, uh, because of his recklessness uh, with not wearing a mask and not doing social distancing, uh, uh, whether there'll be a second debate or when it will be is pretty much up in the air. Uh, uh, no pun intended, given what happens with COVID-19 uh, yeah. uh, at this point. Uh, the, uh, but I think it will be the focus of, uh, it could well be the focus of uh, Wednesday night's uh, vice presidential debate uh, uh, between Kamala Harris and the vice president uh, or perhaps acting President Pence. Uh, uh, I, uh, and there's some very interesting polling that I saw this morning from NBC News uh, showing that uh, following the first debate, even without a discussion of Social Security, uh, uh, Joe Biden, who was already leading for sen- uh, leading among seniors, uh, doubled that lead, uh, uh, more than doubled that lead uh, after the debate, because I think that seniors, and that those are the people who, by and large, are Social Security recipients. There are disabled people and uh, uh, children who are survivors as well. But by and large, it's senior. It's seniors. Uh, I think they were uh, they were totally disgusted by the way 
uh, President Trump uh, conducted himself in that uh, in that first debate. But I really do hope there will be more discussion uh, and and uh, and more uh, speaking about Social Security uh, as we do these final weeks of the campaign. Uh, you know, it just strikes me that, frankly, that the ad almost writes itself. I mean, you know, you could start out with somebody saying uh, something like, this president likes to talk about suckers and losers. If you've paid into Social Security for 40 years and are expecting to get it in, in your retirement, um, uh, is he trying to make a sucker or a loser out of you? You know, or something like that. I mean, it just seems like, and and have you seen much evidence of, of Democrats really uh, hammering on this in, in terms of political ads and that kind of thing? I, I've seen a little bit of discussion of it, but not as much as there should be. And that's one of the reasons that the National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare decided that it needed to go public with its endorsement uh, uh, of, uh, of Joe Biden uh, to elevate what, what Trump intends to do to Social Security and how Joe Biden intends to improve it. Uh, I had the honor in the Clinton administration of serving as associate commissioner of Social Security for retirement policy, which means planning for the future of the program. And the program is sound and strong, but it can be improved. Uh, We did a lot of work on that uh, in the Clinton administration, uh, but Congress was not prepared to make those improvements yet at that point. I think under Joe Biden, we have the opportunity to do that if we, uh, if Democrats can take back control of the Senate uh, and, and maintain control of the House. Uh, because, of course, any changes in Social Security have to go through Congress. Uh, Social Security has been improved uh, with amendments about uh, seven times uh, since it was enacted in 1935. But the last uh, improvements and changes uh, were in 1983 to change, improve the funding so that there'd be Social Security able to pay full benefits for the baby boom generation. It's time mm-hmm. now to make improvements for the future. Uh, Donald Trump's going in the other direction. He's uh, making it uncertain uh, and, uh, and weakening it. Uh, it's why uh, people need to make a plan to vote as soon as possible uh, for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, whether they're voting early or voting by mail, uh, or choosing to plan uh, to vote in person on Election Day. And actually, I'm now starting to call that ballot counting day because election, the election yeah. is taking place already. Well, uh, Jim Roosevelt, uh, grandson of the founder of Social Security, uh, FDR, uh Thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's uh, great talking with you and uh, hearing the perspective of the National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. You do a great service in informing the people of the pond. Alrighty. Uh, top of the hour break for some CBS News. More of the Dave Graham Show to follow. Stay with us, folks. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. 
Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. News Radio, WDEV, FM, and AM. Now back to the Dave Graham Show. We are back and uh, continuing into our second hour of this Monday morning program, October 5th, 2020. So glad to have you with us. We're going to be talking, I believe, very shortly with uh, Stephen Portnoy of CBS News to get caught up with the latest uh, overnight news about the president's health and uh, talk a little bit about the uh, motorcade ride around the hospital yesterday. Uh, The president is uh, coming under some criticism from some quarters anyway for putting those uh, Secret Service officers at risk uh let's uh let's bring in uh, Stephen Portnoy of CBS News thank you so much for joining me this morning hey you bet uh so uh what's the latest word on the president's health are we getting any updates medically well not uh since yesterday and we expect that perhaps later today there's the possibility that we will hear more from the president's doctors but we'll have to see we're not aware of any planned briefings like we've had over the last mm, couple of days the president, uh, according to his senior aide, is uh, improving, and um, the question is whether he will be discharged from the hospital and transferred back to the White House, where there are substantial medical facilities uh, to uh, take care of the president if he needs. Now, remember, the president been placed on a five-day course of remdesivir. That's an IV drip of an antiviral drug, and he's only on the third day. So the expectation is if he were to be transferred back to the White House, that IV drip would be administered there. The president also yesterday, we're told, was put on dexamethasone, which is a powerful steroid typically given to people in the later stages of COVID-19 when they have significant lung damage. It it is an anti-inflammatory that is meant to suppress the immune system's overreaction to COVID-19. And some doctors believe that administered early, that steroid could cause harm by suppressing the immune system. So uh, it seems, according to some experts, that the doctors have thrown the kitchen sink at the president of the United States uh, with an antibody cocktail, the remdesivir antiviral IV, and the dexamethasone steroid. And uh, I guess we'll have to see what happens. To some degree, um, the president is a, is a bit of a medical experiment here, because I'm not sure that any other person who's been infected with COVID-19 has received this much in the way of um, medicine. Certainly not the antiviral, I'm sorry, the uh, antibody cocktail, because that's only been available in clinical trials to date. So the idea that one person's getting this much medicine is, uh, well, I guess we'll have to see how it works. Yeah, that is, uh, I mean, there are a few things that, are, that come to mind there. One is just sort of, uh, obviously, uh, always questions of unequal treatment. Uh, I'm sure other coronavirus patients would like to have had the, uh, the kitchen sink, or their families, their surviving families would like to have had uh, the kitchen sink thrown at them to a greater degree. But, uh, of course, this is the... Uh, President of the United States, so that's in a uh, that is a, a um, tough situation. The um, the other aspect of this of this, of course, is uh, yesterday he took a took a ride around the hospital in his uh, in one of his uh, armored limousines, I guess. Uh, um, wh- what do you have a sense of what the purpose of that was and how it went over? Well, the president himself said he wanted to see. All of the supporters who have come from far away uh, to the 
very heavily democratic area that, uh, that are the Washington suburbs. And remember, Walter Reed National Military Medical Center is in Bethesda, Maryland, just north of uh, D.C. and just south of the Washington Beltway, which is uh, sort of the is sort of seen as like you know the the the, the center core of the, the federal city. So. Um, the president supporters, some of them are reported to have come from uh, Scranton, Pennsylvania, and other places far away have, have driven down and have camped outside Walter Reed to show their support for the president. And the president wanted to signal to them that he was appreciative. The president wound up leaving the hospital without the pool of reporters who traditionally would be part of any presidential motorcade. The, the, the pool was uh, taken to Walter Reed for the briefing that happened early yesterday and then sent back to the White House and dismissed for the day, the, which is a huge breach of protocol that dates back decades, um, back to the early part of the 20th century. The pool, by the way, right now is on its way from the White House, having been COVID tested, to head to Walter Reed to either hear from the president's doctors and or possibly accompany him back to the White House, which would be the proper protocol. But suffice it to say, the president uh, got into his SUV yesterday and wanted to wave to the supporters. Other people in the SUV included his Secret Service detail and um, uh, other aides who uh, have not been identified in the photographs. But uh, the, the, the president was wearing a mask, and some of the other people in the van were not just wearing masks, but full gowns and gloves indicative of the danger posed to them by being in the same enclosed vehicle as a COVID patient who is obviously highly infectious uh, at this early stage of the disease. The um, White House essentially shrugs off those concerns, saying that it was cleared by the medical team, that uh, the PPE was being worn. Oh, and by the way, as Mark Meadows noted this morning, those Secret Service officers and agents also accompanied the president as he flew on the Marine One helicopter to Walter Reed when he was obviously highly infectious. So that's just, I suppose, part of the risk they undertake when they take on such a job. We understand that there is some frustration among the ranks of some Secret Service agents because they have to go home to their families after having been exposed to an active COVID patient, be he the President of the United States or anyone else. A human being is a human being, and when they breathe yeah. oxygen and air, uh, there's the potential that they will spread, in fact, the likelihood that they will spread this disease to other people and breathing the same air. Wow. Um, you know, it's all been about risk mitigation, minimizing risk, and uh, uh, this is something that the president uh, doesn't seem to have been very strong on leading up to this uh, health episode of his, and uh, I don't know uh, whether much has been learned. So we'll have to see if uh, if he ever does have sort of a moment of, hey, wait a minute, maybe I need to change some of my behaviors here. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, Stephen Fortnoy of CBS News, thank you so much for joining me this morning. It's uh, good talking with you. You bet. We, uh, let's see, I, I guess we're going to open the phone lines and see what the listeners think out there, uh, folks out there. Um, one of the thing, one of the recurring questions I've seen a lot of chatter about on over the weekend uh, has been just whether, um, it, how people should feel about this news uh, that the president uh, has uh, come down with the COVID-19 virus. Obviously a very serious disease. It has killed more than 200,000 Americans, uh, many of them in the president's uh, age bracket. He has other other risk factors, including uh, being obese. And uh, it's uh, this could be and may very well be, although we're not getting, we're really not getting a clear story uh, from the White House, uh, just uh, how he's doing. How how sick is he? Uh, is he in any danger of 
dying, for instance, uh, people just are not being uh, very well informed by this White House. But uh, that is uh, that's not a new phenomenon with this White House. So, um, but this question I have is really one of: uh, Is it okay for anybody out there to sort of say, you know, we told you so, or uh, you know, I mean, I've seen every every flavor of chatter. On online over the weekend, people saying, you know, couldn't happen to a nicer guy and all this kind of stuff. Uh, is that okay? Are there, there, or should people feel badly about any sense of, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, feeling like there's justice being done here or something? Uh, listeners, how do you feel about it? Do you think that, uh, that some of the, some of the finger wagging is just outrageous or do you think it's justified? Uh, Call us up here at 244-1777 or 1-877-291-8255. 291-TALK here to reach the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM. Uh, Going to open the phone lines between now and about 10.30. So uh, gather your thoughts and let us know. Mike from Northfield's on the line. Mike, good morning. All right. I don't have much to say except... Um Fear is not the way to govern, nor is it the way to think. And everything you're saying is ridiculously full of fear and madness. And I'm not afraid, and God bless our president. And I hope he gets reelected. Amen. Okay, thanks for the call, Mike. Uh, the uh, fear is uh, not justified here. Um, and I, I don't know if the uh, the emotion that I'm feeling uh, is is necessarily fear. I just have questions about what are uh, what is the proper way to think about this. Uh, um, am I uh, you know do I do I fear that the president might die? Well, certainly a lot of other people uh, in his uh, age bracket and his health background, health concerns. Uh, including obesity and high blood pressure, et cetera, uh, have, uh, have, have, uh, suffered worse from COVID-19, shall we say, than, than, uh, folks who are, you know, 22 years old and, and, uh, very low uh, body mass index and, uh, Olympic swimmers or something. Uh, that's just clear from the health statistics we've seen pretty much since the beginning of this, uh, of this, uh, pandemic and, uh, uh, and the president has taken some criticism over time for uh, really not being very careful about uh, about uh, avoiding uh, avoiding crowds, uh, social distancing, uh, making uh, um, making mask wearing, uh, talking about it much more positively than he has. He was uh, just a, less than a week ago in the debate with Joe Biden was actually mocking. Biden for wearing masks as much as the former vice president has been in recent months. Um, and, uh, you know, the president has been quite uh, inconsistent in his messaging about the COVID-19 virus, uh, saying different things at different times, uh, many of which turn out not to necessarily be true. Uh, he has uh, talked about hydroxychloroquine. I noticed that that is not on the list of uh Medications he's been getting since uh, being admitted to the Walter Reed Military National Military Medical Center, uh, and uh, of course he was asking, I guess, uh, later claiming to be sarcastic, whether the uh, whether there might be um, useful 
applications of disinfectants into uh, a patient with uh, the suffering from the COVID-19 virus um, that that was uh, really strongly dismissed out of hand by a full range of medical experts and and, and the manufacturers of disinfectants saying please don't ingest our products folks they're not meant to be uh, put inside the body there for uh, cleaning your house or your business or whatever um, not meant to be consumed and into uh, anybody's uh, body and uh, so um here uh, here is the president now after all these months of uh of being uh, a fairly um ineffective leader i think most people would agree on the whole covid-19 crisis now uh coming down with the disease himself and uh and we don't re- we don't wish this on anybody it's a nasty horrible uh, disease uh it causes uh patients to suffer quite a bit in terms of being short of breath and uh uh, it's it's miserable from all accounts, and uh, obviously I wish he was right, and then it would just sort of go away. But uh, that hasn't been happening yet. It's still very much with us, and so the best we can do is take some of the pro- precautions that uh, he and his people have not been taking very well. And uh, here we are on uh, three days or so after the announcement from the president in a tweet, uh, one we expect it would have to be in a tweet, that um, he has he and his wife Melania have contracted COVID-19. The president was hospitalized on Saturday, and uh, he is uh, he is in, uh, we don't know exactly what kind of shape he's in because we're getting uh, competing mixed messages. I mean, that, that appearance by Mark Meadows, the chief of staff on Saturday morning when uh, he directly contradicted what the president's doctors had just been saying about how the president was doing was uh, really pretty extraordinary and striking. And uh, here's an email from a listener who says, I dislike the president and his policies and his cronies, and I want him to suffer, but I don't want him to die. I want him to recover and be defeated uh, soundly by Joe Biden. Uh, that's from uh, Michelle Clark of Plainfield. And... Uh, that, I've heard that sentiment and, and seen it online, folks saying, I, we hope the president doesn't die because we want to see him defeated in the upcoming election. Uh, some have added that they'd like to see him prosecuted for uh, various crimes after uh, he is uh, no longer in, in the White House. Uh, and, uh, well, that certainly is one uh, one take on the situation, uh, and uh, I don't, I don't personally want to see the president die either. I, I, I don't think, uh, you know, I don't want to see anybody die from the COVID nineteen crisis. And obviously, an awful lot of the criticism that has been heaped on the president in his handling of the COVID nineteen crisis has had to do with the fact that uh, people have died, and actually more than two hundred thousand people have died. Um, the president's defenders. We'll say that's not to be blamed on him. That's just the way the, the course of this pandemic has gone. Well, uh, I did a little math a couple weeks ago here, actually right on our air. I was in my calculator out, I think, while I was talking to people here on the radio. And uh, uh, if the United States had the same per capita death rate from COVID-19 that Vermont has had, uh, remember, Vermont has been, uh, in by most people's accounts, uh, Democrats and Republicans alike, uh, very well led by Governor uh, Phil Scott and his people, the people around him, uh, Health Commissioner.
Mark Levine most likely sort of leading among them. But uh, uh, the governor has repeatedly insisted he is going to make decisions connected with the COVID crisis. Uh, we, uh, re, uh, as a result of data and science, and he's going to follow the best advice of his public health advisors. And uh, he's just set this tone of, of uh, taking this thing very seriously and uh, not uh, not intentionally downplaying it or upplaying it. It doesn't seem uh, he has uh, uh, he has adopted this leadership style where. It's public health first and politics way, way in the background. Uh, and uh, obviously that is considerably different from the leadership style adopted by our president. And uh, so anyway, I did this math and figured out that if uh, if the uh, United States had the same per capita death rate as Vermont uh, during the course of the pandemic to date, uh, the United States would have seen something in the neighborhood of 30,000 deaths instead of the... Uh, more than 200,000 deaths that it has seen. Now, I will say, obviously, there are factors other than just merely the leadership style of the chief executive of these two uh, political bodies, the state and the nation, uh, coming into play here. Uh, Vermont has uh, has a, uh, a population density that is uh, sparser than the uh, national figure, and uh, so some folks point to that uh lesser population density as being an advantage for Vermont. Vermont also demographically uh, is still one of the whitest states in the country, and uh, for whatever reason, the COVID-19 crisis has affected people of color more than it has uh, white people on a national basis, and uh, so uh, that may be a factor. Um, But again, I don't think those factors that I just mentioned account for such a giant gap between the 30,000 roughly deaths that the nation would have seen if it had the per capita death rate of Vermont and the more than 200,000 deaths that the nation has seen. That is a really striking uh, difference there. And uh, and certainly the United States also uh, is not performing well relative to other countries either and uh, we we uh we have a way a larger share of deaths worldwide than we should have given our population and our share of the world's population uh we are uh, and 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 remember this this is the country that has long bragged about having the best health care in the world uh we, we oftentimes defenders of the status quo in health care will say you know we don't want to go to a single payer sort of socialized medicine model or anything like that because the United States has such superior health care. Well, I would say this pandemic has been a pretty good test of that, uh, that proposal. That, that, and, uh, we, um, here we are, you know, in the midst of trying to fight this terrible disease, the, uh, COVID-19. And, uh, how have we done? How, you know, I think people have to be honest with, with themselves about just how are we doing relative to other countries that, for instance, uh, do have uh, government-supported health care. Well, um, stack them up and get us accurate numbers, and let's see how we're doing. That's, that would be the uh, the way to go, it seems to me. But uh, um, too, many, too, too many facts. <laughs> too many facts for some folks. Hey, let's go to Paul from Moncton. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. Hey, uh, I'm not sure if I necessarily agree with some of the comments made, but let me just go some point by point. Um, first of all, um, 
with regards to the indictment of our healthcare system, whether it's single payer, multi payer, whatever the system, it's more an indictment on the health of Americans, period. And I think that's not due necessarily to the healthcare system, but by we're, the fact that we're a free country and that we are allowed to make choices. And oftentimes our choices are poor and they lead to bad outcomes, especially with a pandemic like this, where a disease is, um, really targets people who have, you know, bad health. Um, with regards to uh, President Trump and his impact upon the Destin's country, I do remember a comment made early on that said the low would be 200,000, uh, the high would be 2 million. So right now we're kind of at the low. Whether or not that's going to accelerate over the next few months or year, I don't know. Um, and lastly, um, and you're not necessarily wrong, you could be right about everything you said, Dave. Uh, finally, if you're going to put Trump in that category, then I suggest we also put the governors of Massachusetts, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and New York right alongside them as being having blood on their hands. Because in those cases, those governors made bad decisions in allowing COVID recoverers into nursing home facilities that facilitated the death of many who probably would not have died had those people not been put into those facilities. Well, I do want to push back on one of these things, which is the uh, this 200,000 versus 2 million. Um, 2 million was a very speculative number. And uh, what I want to compare is 30,000 versus 200,000, because uh, these these numbers are actually based now on the history, on the factual history of how the COVID-19 crisis has unfolded uh, in Vermont and in the country. And so you, you can, you can tell me that back in March or February, people were imagining we could have two million deaths from COVID. Uh, thank God we haven't. We have had uh, something north of 200,000 now. Uh, and, and to me, that's the worst case scenario. It's what's, what, what has actually happened, especially if you can then compare it with, you know, how are other people doing? Um, and, and that's why I'd much rather go with, sort of the factual history of what has actually happened in these first seven or so months of the COVID-19 crisis, as opposed to somebody's guess back in February that we might have 2 million deaths. Doesn't that make no, sense? Fair enough, Dave. No, no, fair enough. Um, but I think there's other factors involved. And uh, what it tells me is, A, that my other three comments uh, have some validity to them. Uh, but in regard to this one, there are other factors that do play a role. One, if you look at small states, which is sparse populations, they tend to fare a little bit better. Uh, look at New Zealand, which is an island unto itself, um, which is easy to protect and keep people out and also do some of their uh, measures, make decisions. Uh, and then last but not least, while I certainly agree with you, Vermont looks like a shining star, I also have to note that, and we haven't done enough investigation into this at any level, is what happens when you shut down an economy to the extent that some states have who look better with the COVID and pandemic results, but yet now have people um, who are increasing alcoholism, an increase in uh, domestic abuse, an increase in suicide, um, people who now are depressed and destitute to the extent um, they're you know, thinking suicide because they've lost their jobs and they can't, uh, you know, the, country, the state won't open up in order to allow them to get work. So there's other factors in there, and I don't know what those numbers look like, to be honest with you, but I'd love to have someone come on and do a little comparison to see how many lives have been lost that may not have been lost had we not shut down. And I'm not saying I don't know what the right answer is, how much is shut down or not shut down, but I do know there is an impact going the other way, too. I actually saw figures recently indicating Vermont's suicide rate is down from prior years so far in 2020. I don't know why that. And then you mentioned the um, the uh, different health decisions that Americans make on an individual basis, uh, and that we're a free country and we're allowed to eat uh, cookies and uh, drink lots of alcohol or whatever it is. Uh, uh, 
that's very true in other countries. Germany, for instance, has, uh, you know, heaven knows uh, there's some beer that gets consumed in Germany. There's German chocolate cake, which is <laughs> routinely delicious, uh, you know, and they, they have the freedom to consume these things if they want to. Uh, so I don't see, I don't see that there's a huge difference there. Uh, one difference is that, uh, you know, they have a, a calm and competent scientist as their chief executive, Angela Merkel in Germany. Well, I, um, I somebody who. I, I, without you or I having facts, other individual facts, I have a, a married into a family from Switzerland. Uh, I understand the lifestyle over there. It's much more family oriented and it's much more active outdoors. There are other factors involved, but uh, make the comparison of just, you know, who eats cookies and doesn't. Um, it's not all, you know, inclusive. It's just, uh, you know, I look at the country and I see the obesity rates and I see um, people who have the diseases that come from them. And those people tend to be more susceptible to serious results from a pandemic such as COVID. And that's something to look at. Um, the lifestyles in some of these other countries are more family-oriented, uh, lower divorce rates, um, you know, more you know, unique families in terms of older age parents with children and grandchildren in the same household or nearby each other, taking care of each other. So there's some factors that are involved with that. I don't think it's just as cut as dry as A and B. Yeah, uh, it could be. I mean, obviously there are a lot of a lot of things to speculate about here, but uh, I, I, uh, I, I and I think that I think that uh, that some of what is is required here in a situation like this is calm and steady uh, leadership, which does not fly off at the handle and does not even slightly suggest that anybody should be. Uh, ingesting disinfectants as a cure or treatment for the COVID-19 crisis uh, uh, does not make promises about how the COVID-19 crisis is going to go away when the weather gets warm. Uh, and, I will agree with you on those, Dave. You're absolutely correct. Yeah, I and I, I just think that that what you need here is you need calm competence and and you need you, you need a uh, a leadership style which says. Let's really listen to the public health experts here. They know a lot more about this than the typical politician. Uh, if they say uh, folks would be better off to wear masks in public, then uh, let's all wear masks. Uh, and, and, and to think there's sort of something wrong with that, like we're, we're caving into some taking away of our liberty or something, is just a, uh, you know, for years people saw signs on store doors which said no shoes, no shirt, no service. Those were public health messages. And nobody ever decided that if you follow that, you're a Republican or you don't follow that, you're a Democrat or vice versa. And suddenly, right, in this weird... Dave, but thanks. I appreciate it. And you're, you're right. You're absolutely correct. Okay. Yeah, just... Thank you very much for the call. In, in this in this weird political climate we're in right now, something like no shirt, no shoes. I'm surprised that hasn't become a mark of whether you're a liberal or conservative. I mean, this is this has really gotten silly here, people. And uh, I think we ought to wake up and realize that uh, not everything is ideology. Ideology has just come to dominate so many of our com- of our conversations that uh, things like common sense and uh, and uh, and a real desire for uh, for everybody to have the best health possible, and just take the take the small steps uh, 
you know, and as I've said before, our police officers don all sorts of gear. Our military people don or all sorts of gear every day, and they're in the business of trying to keep Americans safe. If we have to put a little piece of cloth over our faces to keep Americans safe, it seems the least we could do to honor the, the uh, sacrifices they make. All right, let's go into our bottom of the hour CBS News break. We'll be back in a couple of minutes with folks on the Vermont Specialty Foods Association. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rock and Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. It's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. Thanks for staying with us, folks. We're back, and we're going to be talking this half hour about a very fun subject, uh, specialty foods. Vermont uh, produces an awful lot of delicious stuff in the specialty foods realm, and uh, it's uh, really quite a burgeoning industry in the state. Many businesses have become successful marketing all sorts of uh, delicious things to eat, and uh, we're going to be talking first off with uh, Aaron Segrist, who's uh, Association uh, Director with the Vermont Specialty Food Association, Uh, and also uh, I think we're going to be talking with uh, some uh, producers of specialty foods who will be checking in with us uh, this in the next few minutes here on the Dave Graham Show. Uh, I believe Aaron uh, is with us uh, on the phone, and good morning. Thank you for joining me. Do we have Aaron Segrist? Um, hmm. <laughs> Not hearing Aaron. Oh, wait, there she is. Hello. I can hear you now. That's yeah. a good thing. Thanks for thanks for joining me, Aaron. It's good talking with you. Hey, um, so first, tell us about the annual event that is a lot different this year. What's going on? Yeah. So first, thanks for having us on. We're excited to talk about our annual meeting. Um, typically, we have two in-person meetings each year, uh, but unfortunately, due to COVID, we've had to cancel those in-person meetings, and we've moved them uh, both virtual. So uh, Wednesday, we'll be hosting our virtual annual meeting, um, usually our annual meetings in June, but uh, we're hosting it this year online uh, this Wednesday at 1 o'clock, and we'll hear from some uh, pretty exciting speakers, actually. We have Natalie King, who is our keynote speaker. She's the Chief of Sales and Marketing at Stonewall Kitchen, um, and we also have a a vice president from the National Specialty Food Association who will share some trends um, that they are seeing post-COVID or what what they're anticipating will be um, up and coming post-COVID. And then we'll also hear from Cassandra Larray Perez, who is an attorney with um, a a phenomenal uh, group up in Burlington. She'll talk a little bit about uh, regulatory changes at the national and a couple at the state level as well. So it should be a great event. Um, We're looking forward to hosting many of our members um, at 1 o'clock via Zoom. And uh, members and non-members are welcome. Members uh, of Vermont Specialty Food Association and the Vermont Retail and Grocers Association 
uh, can register for free, and non-members um, can join for ten dollars. Wow! And, and so the um, uh, how would you say overall the specialty foods uh, industry is doing in the in the midst of this COVID crisis? Yeah, that's a great question. Obviously, uh, you know some of some of the small producers did shut down at the beginning of COVID. They were trying to figure out, you know, are we quote essential or not essential? And they're food manufacturers, so they are essential. So um, as soon as they, you know, got their ducks in a row and made sure that everyone could be safe, um, many of those food manufacturers um, did come back online. Um, if they did end up shutting down, they they were able to come back online pretty quickly, uh, and. and you know, it's it's a double-edged sword. They were up and running pretty quickly. They're pretty nimble organizations, um, but it does take a lot of effort and marketing to get those those foods out to market and for people to get to know and try and taste those foods. Um, so it's they've taken a bit of a hit, but uh, one positive is that you know these food producers here in Vermont are. Um, I, I like to use the word scrappy in the best form, right? They they do everything mm-hmm. they possibly can to get uh, their food out there in front of people and, and do everything they can to promote it as quickly and um, as, as well as they can. So, you know, we've all taken a hit, whether they're food producers or retailers. Um, they've certainly uh, been impacted, but hopefully we are back on track um, sooner rather than later, and and they continue to do really well. Let's bring in one of those producers. We have uh, Mark Elvidge of uh, Vermont Nut Free Chocolates on the uh, on the phone with us as well. Uh, good morning, Mark. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. And uh, Mark, first off, tell me uh, where is your business based? We're in Vermont. Um, we're in Colchester. I see. Okay. And uh, uh, Nut Free Chocolates. It's right in the name of your business. Uh, Tell us about that. What is the, uh, I, I mean, I, I can guess what some of the advantages of nut-free chocolates might be, but uh, it sounds like you are uh, trying to carve, uh, carve out a bit of a niche market there. Yeah, we do We do have a niche market. It's the uh, peanut and tree nut allergic market, um, you know, that we serve quite well with our full line of gourmet chocolates and granola bars and trail mix and other confectionery products that we're in our uh, 22nd year of doing so. Wow. Um, and how has how has this year been for your business with the COVID-19 crisis going on? This year's actually been, um, you know, challenging, of course, um, with the extra protocols and, and things that we have to do to keep our, our team safe. Um, you know, uh, but I am proud that we've been able to do so and kept everybody fully employed. Uh, we are primarily, um, our biggest channel is mail order. So the mail order is a really perfect model for times like these. So we have um, stayed busy through the whole summer and uh, anticipate a, a pretty busy fourth quarter as well. Mm-hmm. I, I would imagine that the, 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 the holiday season, the end of the year, uh, probably is your strongest season. Is that right? Yeah, generally Christmas season uh, is the biggest um, holiday. Um, Easter is, you know, sometimes neck and neck with it. Sometimes it surpasses mm. uh, holidays. But, yes, uh, we're coming up yep. in a pretty busy few months. And then, of course, there's, the, there's Valentine's Day. <laughs> People yes. like to send chocolates on Valentine's Day. Exactly. Um, and 
and and I would I would think you know you mentioned the uh, the the sort of uh, uh, not not allergic uh, market out there, uh, and yet um, there are plenty of people who like uh, plain chocolates uh, without nuts. Even if they aren't allergic, they just sort of say mm, all chocolate. Yes, yeah, and and the advantage we have is that our products are all gourmet quality and very delicious as well. So even though it is uh, free from, um, it's not missing any taste, flavor, or texture, and anybody can enjoy it, um, including uh, the people who have the dietary restriction from the nut allergy. Yeah, huh? Um, and the um, in, in in terms of the mail order aspect, also. Um, uh, People are doing a lot of a lot more shopping, uh, frankly, by mail than they are, I think, uh, going out to stores these days because they want to limit their own exposures and so on. Um, is, is that model of a business actually helped by the current situation? Uh, yes, it actually is. Our, you know, we we've like I mentioned earlier, our largest channel is mail order direct to consumer. Even though we're in about 650 retail stores and growing. Um, mm-hmm. Our, our mail order business was up significantly, um, you know, since um, since March um, this year, and stayed pretty strong through the summer, which usually it, you know kind of slows down until we get back into fall. But yeah, uh, yeah it's uh, it, it's um, you know the, the mail order model is is going to be with us, I think, for for some time to come. Has that has that offset or more than offset the decline? I would guess uh, that you saw have you seen in uh, retail traffic. Uh, yes. I mean, initially the retail traffic, uh, retail stores that were carrying our products kind of slowed down because we're a specialty food product and we're not in center store. We're more on the edges and on the peripheral. Um, and people were kind of making a mission driven trip to grocery stores when they had to go for the, the basics and the staples. So we saw a little dip in our, uh, retail partner, uh, business, um, right when the pandemic hit, but, uh, that has recovered this summer. Um, and our mail order business has grown as well. Um, you know, plus we brought on three new distributors um, in the last few months as well. So um, we're we're poised to have a, a pretty good year. Fortunately, in, in, ter- in terms of the Vermont brand, a lot I know a lot of food companies like being in Vermont because just the name Vermont conveys something. Uh, how, how does that work for you? Um, so Vermont has um, you know a, a good quality. Um, product associated with it. Anytime there is a Vermont product, uh, Vermont is home, as you know, to uh, hundreds and hundreds of specialty food companies, and everybody makes delicious products and, and um, variation of, of all kinds of specialty foods. Um, so the Vermont name actually does lend credibility and quality uh, to consumers in other states, uh, particularly um you know, Colorado and California seem to really like Vermont products, um, hmm. but but it has a it has a good name throughout the country as well. Yeah, I remember years ago hearing about a uh, something that was being. I don't even remember what, what the product was, but it was being marketed in Japan with the Vermont name on it. I said, oh, uh, "Wow, <laughs> that's uh, that is uh, really getting out there." So there yeah. you go. That's mm-hmm. very very mm-hmm. interesting. Um, let's see. Uh, well, um, Mark Elvidge of uh, Vermont uh, Nut-Free Chocolates based in Colchester, thanks very much for getting on our air for a few minutes this morning. It's good talking with you, and I wish you luck as you continue to uh, work through this uh, weird situation we're all in. Great. Thank you for having me, and it's uh, a pleasure to have been uh, uh, able to talk with you. 
Excellent. Okay, uh, let's bring in actually another specialty food producer here. I believe we have uh, Judith Irving of Fat Toad Farm. Good morning, Judith. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. And uh, mm-hmm. tell us about Fat Toad Farm. Where are you located, and uh, what kind of specialty foods do you make? So we're located in Brookfield, in the center of Vermont, and we make a goat's milk caramel sauce. Goat's milk caramel sauce. Mmm, that yeah. sounds tasty. And uh, is this for is this for putting on ice cream or what do you what do you what do you well, uh, what do you, you Yeah. Yep. <laughs> you can put it on ice cream. This time of year it's really great for dipping apples in or you know, drizzling mm. over apple pie or apple crisp. But I regularly hear from people who uh, in sort of a whisper say to me, I hate to say it, but I just eat it by the spoonful. <laughs> and I think, yeah, join the crowd. <laughs> yeah, wow. Uh, uh, how did you? Uh, how did you land on this as a, as the product that was going to be the core of your business? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. So, um, about fifteen years ago, um, we, my husband, my daughters, and I decided to, you know, just spend more time raising our own food, um, and we kind of branched into animal raising. And one day my husband said, oh, I've always wanted to milk goats. Yeah, that was, you know, he was in commercial real estate, so that was a little hard to believe. But um, mm. so we just started, we got a couple of goats, we started milking them. And at that point, my oldest daughter returned here from living in Mexico. The product we make, a goat's milk caramel sauce, is very common all over Mexico. It's a traditional mm. sweet that they use for everything. Um, and she said, we should be making this caramel sauce because it's amazing. And I know how to do it. So that's how we started. Um, she and myself made it in the kitchen, and then we did the usual thing. You know, we got more goats, and then we built a little facility on our farm here, and it just went from there. And uh, which uh, which fat toad gets the honor of having the farm named for it? <laughs> the one that was sitting on our doorstep. Um, oh, you know, uh, this, this farm has been in... Um, operation here in various forms since the mid-1800s and was actually called Apple Hill, Apple Tree Farm. And we went mm-hmm. and um, went to register that name and it was taken by another company in Vermont. And so we just sat around the kitchen table and said, what are we going to call this? And we had a lot of fat toads in our gardens and that eventually came up as the idea. Um, and so we did it and it's been a fun, a fun, you know, kind of brand and symbol and logo to play around <laughs> with. Wow, long may the story be towed. Uh, uh, anyway, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so that's uh, <laughs> that is really uh, really kind of fun. Uh, this sounds like a. Uh, I must say, it sounds like um, a, a real specialty among specialties. A, a fairly narrow niche, in fact. Uh, um, how how have you uh, how have you done in the COVID nineteen situation here? Well, that's, you know, that's a good question. And, you know, we, yes, you are right. It is a specialty within a specialty. Um, so believe it or not, we're the biggest producer in the United States, <laughs> which is hilarious because we're located on a dirt road in, in um, Brookfield. Um, but we do distribute all over the U.S. Um, and we're, you know, very popular in specialty food stores, which leads me to answer your question about COVID-19 because one of the things, of course, that we all know happened is that all the stores, whether they're large or small, um, who are in the retail business, you know, really, really shut down. 
um, mm-hmm. right in the March and April time frame. And so there was a while there where we, you know, the hundreds of stores we distributed to, all of them were closed. And Yikes. What happened, interestingly, at the same time what, what, that we also all know about is people started ordering online. And so our orders that came through our website just uh, and through Amazon, because we're on Amazon, just started growing. And um, that has continued on as and, and at the same time, you know, some of the stores have started opening. So it, it at the beginning, it really seemed like we had no idea what was going to happen to us like everybody else. Um, but as it turns out, people love little treats when they're kind of making sacrifices and working hard everywhere yeah. else. And yep. um, this is a very affordable, kind of yummy, decadent indulgence that people can mm-hmm. do. So I think that's what we're seeing happening. If somebody wants to sample this and, uh, you know, they've never tried the uh, goat's milk uh, caramel sauce, uh, where would he, uh, and, and let's say, uh, well, maybe I'll go to a local Vermont uh, specialty foods outlet and, and buy and buy some here in the WDEV listening area, for instance. Where would uh, somebody acquire such a, uh, your yeah. product? Well, I say um, Cold Hollow Cider um, is, is one of our biggest customers and has, the biggest selection of our products. We mm-hmm. make eight different varieties, different flavors of this yep. uh, goat's milk camera sauce, and they have a lot of stock, but also like um, the Hunger Mountain Co-op or there's a uh, Stowe Mercantile. Um, there's places, kind of, oh, and the Roots Market up in um, uh, Middlesex. Lots of places right. around Central Vermont. Well, uh, mask up, folks, and uh, maintain your social distancing, but get out there there one of those uh, shops and uh, sample some of this. I, I haven't. I may have to do this sometime soon. Uh, probably not quite on my diet right now, but, uh, you know, there's oh, you always... Just, uh, you just eat a little, little bit, and it makes you feel really good. You don't have to eat a lot. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I uh, really um, appreciate the... Uh, you are joining us, Judith Irving of Fat Toad Farm in Brookfield. Thanks for talking with us this morning. Thank you. All righty. Aaron Segrist, uh, I, I'm just always intrigued when I hear about a brand of Vermont specialty foods that I had not heard of before. And I think of, uh, obviously, our last little mini segment on, uh, on uh, goat's milk caramel. Uh, it's gotta be, gotta set a new record. Have you had some of that? The goat's milk caramel sauce? You know, I, I'll be honest, Dave, I am not a big fan of caramel, but if you try this caramel, you're gonna absolutely love it. It's the only caramel I will eat. And I think you asked first thing about putting it on ice cream. I'm, that's my biggest weakness. So get some delicious (laughs) vanilla bean ice cream and drizzle some of that. Uh, goat's milk caramel on top of it, fat toad farm car- caramel. Make sure it's fat toad farm, and and it'll be the perfect dessert. Wow. Okay. Sure. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> or maybe it's bad to know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's definitely but, uh... bad. Ice cream <laughs> does not survive in our house, so you know, ice cream mm. and, and fat toad caramel is is certainly not going to survive in our house. So. Well, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta enjoy your, indulge yourself occasionally. So just, every uh, once in a while, yeah, yeah. Everything in moderation, I think, is what Aristotle said. So, anyway, um, 
But you, you know, the amazing thing about uh, specialty foods, in my uh, in my humble estimation here, is just the range of stuff. Uh, um, I remember uh, write, writing a story about Vermont specialty foods years ago when I was working for the Associated Press, and um, you know, people sort of immediately think maple syrup, and they think about Ben and Jerry's ice cream, and they think about um, the many different uh, chocolates and so on, um, mm-hmm. but. Uh, the specialty foods universe includes tons of stuff, doesn't it? I mean, all the stuff that gets pickled, for instance. Is that does that count among specialty foods? It does. Anything that's that's value add would be considered a specialty food. So you know, we've got um, pasta sauces, and um, like you said, there's there's obviously uh, several maple producers around the state. We've got. Um, you know, jams and jellies and, and brittle and coffee, hot sauces. Um, there's, there's baby buns of Vermont. So, you know, uh, mini baby bunt cakes that you can pick up at the co-op or your local store and bring those to, um, you know, to a host for a, a thank you gift. There's crackers, anything that, the, that provides additional value on top of your, your normal everyday meal is would be considered uh, a specialty food. You know, anything that is is produced small batch is is considered specialty food. Well, all right, get, get out there, folks, and uh, get yourself some specialty foods. There are many, many different kinds. Aaron Seacrest and uh, your friends from the association there. I want to thank you all very much for joining me. It's uh, been great talking with you. Thanks for having me. Hey, that's going to about do it for the Dave Graham Show. On this Monday morning, stay tuned for Bill Sayre, Common Sense Sense Radio, and we will be back uh, tomorrow morning with another edition of our show. Have a great afternoon, everybody.